together. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at a, a longer section of Scripture this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 8. It says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise for the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then. How you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what, will, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body, for whoever loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not promote your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whoever, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both your master is also theirs in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. Oh, our Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would come hungry to your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be nourished by it. 
Lord, I pray that you would humble our spirits. Lord, I pray that you would make our hearts sensitive to what you would have us to hear today. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. We're going to take a look at Ephesians 5 and 6 uh, this morning as we take a look at a church story. To begin with, I want to talk about a phrase that we use in church quite a bit. Uh, It is a phrase that goes like this. It is important that you invite Jesus into your heart. We want every single person to invite Jesus into their heart. That is a language and a phrase. Anyone ever heard that phrase before? It's kind of a phrase that we use around our church and churches like this for a really, really long time. Now, sometimes if you don't grow up in a church, that kind of seems like a strange sentence. What exactly does that mean? But it's a good sentence because what it does is it talks about the fact that we want to invite Jesus into the very center of our lives. When we use asking Jesus into your heart, we're talking about moving him into the deepest, most important, most central part of your life. And so for that reason, it is a really helpful conversation. It's an important statement for you to hear. In fact, if there hasn't been a time in your life where you haven't intentionally had a conversation with Jesus and asked Him to be central to your life and to the center of your life and for Him to come live in the deepest part of your life, that's a conversation that we would like to have before you leave today because it's the most important thing that you can do is to ask Jesus to come and dwell in that center, deepest, most important part of your life. But as good as that sentence is, and as good as that phrase is, it also has some limitations. Because what can happen is that we can have this sense that I'm going to ask Jesus into my heart, and He's going to come and dwell inside of my heart. And there is the possibility that in our mindset, we've asked Jesus to come and live in our heart, and then we contain Him there in our heart, and He remains isolated in our heart. It's a lot like having something that's really valuable to you, something really valuable to your family that is so important that you take it to the bank and put it in a safety deposit box under lock and key behind the big vault doors, and you just know this is really important. It is in such a safe and secure place. But you haven't looked at it in years. No one has touched it. No one has used it. No one has worn that jewelry. No one has had any contact with it. In fact, some people can't even remember what that really, really important, really, really safely guarded thing even looks like because we have contained it in this safe place. And so what I would say to you, church, is it's really, really important that you ask Jesus into your heart, but it's also really, really important that you don't just keep him in your heart. And in fact, that's the conversation that uh, the Word of God wants us to hear this morning as we take a look at Ephesians 5 and 6. What the Word of God wants you to hear today is that you are to understand God in an intellectual standpoint. You are to place him at the very heart and deepest parts of your life, but you are not to leave him contained squared off from the rest of your life by just saying Jesus is in my heart. 
I want to think back and give us a little bit of context in our, our series of messages here where we're thinking about Ephesus, a church story. What we're doing is that we are trying to track this story, this, this church that appears in so many different places in the New Testament from their birth until one of the last books of the New Testament uh, describes the church there in Ephesus. And we're kind of following along that track. And so here we are in this letter where Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. Where this is, is he has visited them the, the first time. Remember, he had he came by for a really short visit and said, here, let me tell you about Jesus, but I got to fly. And then he just kind of leaves. He says, if the Lord wills, I'll come back. Well, the Lord does will, and he does come back. And he stays for two or three years at that point. He leaves again, goes on another journey, comes back, and just kind of interacts with some of the leaders in a nearby village. He, the, the leaders come and meet with him. We talked about that last Sunday morning. After that, Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and it's when he is imprisoned in Rome that he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. It is about nine years' time from the first time that he visits Ephesus to when he writes this letter. So nine years, short amount of time or a long amount of time? Well, it really kind of depends. Uh, right now, it feels like February was forever ago, uh, and so nine years seems like an eternity, but some of you live in the same house that you lived in nine years ago. You, you, your family structure is the same as what it was uh, nine years ago. And so part of this letter, it's only been nine years since Paul met them for the first time. But what I think is fascinating about this is understanding that Paul began this church from scratch. The only folks that came and helped him start that church came from other places. Is that basically there's nobody who is in this church that's been a believer for 10 years' time. Everybody in this church is still a new believer in the church in Ephesus. Everyone is there nine years or less since they've come to Christ, and a bunch of those folks are probably less than that amount of time. And so they are still on the learning part of their faith. There's a lot of things that they understand, but there's other things that Paul is still trying to teach them and still trying to instruct them about. And one of the things that he wants them to know in the beginning of the book of Ephesus, he says, these are the things you have to know in your head. These are the things you have to know in your heart. But do not make the mistake of isolating your faith in your heart and separated from the everyday parts of life. You know, we need role models growing up, don't we? We have role models in, in, in our family. Uh, my dad was a role model for me in a lot of different uh, ways. Uh, but sometimes we, we need a role model that is outside of our house. We kind of want to lift our eyes up on the horizon and kind of look a little bit further away from, from home. And, and as a kid, I was looking for uh, a role model, someone that I could really base my, my life on. And so here's, here's the guy that I, that I found uh, back in the time. Um, Old Fred Flintstone. Now I want you to think about Fred. Now, now first of all, first of all, check him out. Uh, he is driving a non-fossil fuel vehicle, uh, in part because the dinosaurs are still around, so there's no fossils to be had. So there, there, there's that. Uh, he's environmentally friendly, uh, but uh, but Fred's got a he's got a wife that he loves. He's, he's got a little girl that he likes. He's got a best friend. I mean, don't we all want to have uh, just like a a best friend? Uh, Fred also has got a good job, a real steady uh, job. Seems like maybe he, he's doing okay for himself. I mean, look, he drives that. I mean, he's really doing uh, 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 well for himself. But I think the thing that I liked about Fred was Fred was a member of the Loyal Order 
of the Buffaloes. You remember that? Uh, Fred w- w- would go to this, this club that he was a part of, the Loyal Order of the Buffaloes. And, and I don't know an awful lot about what it means to be a Loyal Order of the Buffalo, but I was interested in being a member of the Loyal Order of the Buffaloes. First of all, I mean, they had me at the hat. You remember the, the hat that, that, that he would wear? And then they would have like a handshake and a greeting where they'd greet each other, you know, something, 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 the loyal order of the water uh, buffaloes. They, they would hang out at the lodge, uh, and they, they went bowling all of the time. Uh, this was the life of what it meant to be the loyal order of the buffalo. But it's not who Fred was all the time. It's just when there was a loyal order of the buffalo meeting on the schedule. It was just certain days of the month. It was just certain days of the year that Fred would be the loyal order of the buffalo. He would pull out his loyal order of the buffalo hat. He would brush up on the, the, the handshake. No one is giving me back this thing at all here. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, he, he would do this, and he would, it would be one of those days. He'd put it on. He'd do the thing, and then he'd put it back away, put it back in the box in the closet. And, and, and if I remember correctly, he couldn't find his hat most of the time. He would always get mad at Wilma, where's my hat and stuff like that. And, and he'd have to get it out and they'd do the, still nobody. All right, good. Uh, so he, he would do all of those, those things. But basically it was something that he could, that, that he would pick up because it was on the calendar. And then he would put it down and go to the rest of life. Now, Basically, that is the Ephesian experience of religion. It is, it is something that when a, when a day shows up on the calendar, when, when an event shows up uh, on the schedule, then, then you pick that stuff up, you, you put on the hat, you do the greeting, you go to the lodge, you go and meet with folks, you experience those things, and then when it's over, you put it back down. Now, part of it is, remember, Ephesus is a city that's got tons of different gods, They have identified temples and altars and inscriptions to 12 different gods. Plus the emperor says at least one time a day, one time a year, I I want you to worship me. And in that time and place, they had what they call mystery cults that were a lot of times connected to your occupation where, where there were these things where it was almost a religion to itself. And so if you are a person living in Ephesus... How do you manage all of those things? Well, you just have to look at your calendar and say, okay, today's the day that, that I do this stuff for Artemis. Here's the day I do this for the emperor. Here, here's the day that I do this. And so basically they were in the habit of picking up their religion, doing whatever that religion called for and demanded, and then when it was done, taking it off, putting it down, and moving on to what is next. That was the Ephesian experience in terms of religion. But Paul wants them to know that is not the Christian experience of religion. You see, what he said in the text here says, listen, you used to be darkness, but now you are light. You don't want to go from darkness to light, darkness to light, darkness to light. Once you have experienced light, don't go back and be darkness. In fact, he says, listen, because of that, be careful how you walk. You should walk as though you are a person who is in the light. And he begins to describe this is how you should speak. This is how you should think. This is the things that you should dwell on. This is how you should live your life. And it should impact every aspect of life. You see, what Paul wants them to know is that we can begin by asking Jesus into our heart. But there's no way that Jesus is supposed to be contained and limited to our heart. But he is supposed to break loose into every extremity of our life and to fill up every part of our life. As an example of this, 
he talks about three different realms, three different places in which our faith is supposed to show up. Now, I'm going to tell you that the Ephesian experience never would have expected that because you went to this religious experience or this religious experience or this religious experience that it was ever supposed to impact your life beyond that place. It couldn't. There were too many of those religious experiences. They were competing with each other. It was just something you picked up and then you put down. But Paul says, no, this is who you are. This is your core experience. This is your core identity. And so it can't stay in your heart. It's got to go and break through like the floodgates crashing open into every part of your life. And he describes three places. These aren't the only three places in life. But I will tell you that if we allow our faith to touch these three places, then we will have moved a long way in our growth in our faith, and allowing God to lead us. Did you notice what they were? They, they, they were pretty clear in, in, in the text there. You, you kind of know, you almost can finish the sermon uh, for me, but, but let me just go ahead and try to do my part here. But, but you know where we're going. The first place that he's talking about is marriage. The first place that he says, listen, if you're going to get your faith out of your heart and into the rest of your life, it starts with marriage. Now, you may think that's a tough place for that to start. Now, on one hand, you're like, well, of course, that's where we start because that's, you know, that's so important to our lives. But from a practical wheels-on-the-ground kind of experience, that is hard. That is hard because there's something about the, the proximity and intensity that comes from married life. There is something about the exposing of our vulnerabilities that happens over a period of time in married life that, in fact, sometimes that intensity becomes so strong that our natural reaction is to build up some protective calluses, some protective filters over our life so that we can live in the same house but not be so vulnerable to each other and exposed. Now listen, I haven't been reading your emails or your text messages. I, I, I don't know your story. I just kind of know most people. I mean, not personally like I've had lunch with most people in the world, but I, but I know people. I, I know my life. And the reality is that it is difficult to live vulnerable and exposed to one another for a long period of time. And so we just build up these protective calluses over each other so that we just don't touch each other in that same way. We don't live that exposed. But what the Word of God says is that we are to peel that back because at its definition, when the two become one flesh, when people come from two different places and they literally become one person, God says it only works if you will live completely exposed to one another. And so what this means is trust. And he talks here about the trust that, that a wife has to have for her husband where, where, where she submits and puts him first and says, I, I'm not going to live this based on, on everything that I'm looking for, but, but I'm going to do this as I submit and I put you first in this relationship. Just like Christ served the, the church or the, the, the church serves Christ in that same way, follows Christ in that same way. He speaks to the husband here 
And he gives husbands a four-part direction on how they're supposed to live inside of a marriage. You might want to write this down, guys. Are you ready? The first one is husbands, you ready? Love your wives, okay? That's, that's step one, okay? Step two is husbands love your wives. Step three is husbands love your wives, and then he hits a really big finale and says, you know what, guys? Husbands, you should love your wives. Now, I have taught for a long time that these words submit and love are really interchangeable because what it means to submit is to put the needs of someone else first. Well, what is love? Love is putting the needs of somebody else first. It is choosing that you matter more than I matter. And so I would say to you that these two words sometimes are not like, this is what the women have got to do and this is what the men have got to do. No. In fact, if you go back to verse 21 here, it says, submit yourselves to one another. It is a general statement that says, as a follower of Christ, we are to put the needs of other people in front of ourselves. For instance... Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Both of them are supportive to the statement in 521 that says, submit yourselves one to another. But hear this. What we want to avoid, one of the things that we cannot allow for is the place where our marriages get to a mutual cooperative agreement that says, you know what? We're just going to figure out how to do this. It's easier to pay the bills. It's easier to do the carpool. It's easier to do all of these things if we just stay married and just try not to kill each other. Okay? There's been a moment or two where that's crossed your mind. But when we let Christ fill our marriage, what the Word here says is you stay exposed, you stay vulnerable. This isn't about a cooperative agreement of mutual beneficial experience. This is, I'm poured out to you, and you're poured out to me. Now, are there bumps and bruises along that way? Let me check. Susan, are there bumps and bruises along that way? Yes, there are. Do you get hurt sometimes along in that process? Well, yeah. But when you live exposed and vulnerable, you are. But at the same time, it becomes one of the great places where God works in our life. In fact, what he says here is, listen, husbands, you are to love your wife so that you can present her holy and blameless to Christ. In other words, what you're wanting to do inside of that marriage is to help the other person grow as much as they possibly can spiritually. And here's a, just a check on our life. Guys, it's a check on our, our life. Uh, wives, to, to say, man, what have I done to invest in, care for, pursue the spiritual health of my spouse? Listen, tell me that it, the Ephesian experience of religion never asked that question. But a Christ-centered experience of faith says, listen, moves from the heart 
into my marriage. The second place where it shows up is it shows up inside of my family. Hey, you know, our family, again, is the place where we, we live so close to each other. We know how to push each other's buttons. We know how to exasperate each other. We know how to get each other just kind of mad. And that just kind of, that's, you know, sometimes we, we think of the idea of a road trip could be the worst thing that could possibly happen. All of the people in my family in one car together who will kill each other if we do that. Because we know, man, I'm telling you, me and my brothers in that backseat of that Datsun 210 as we would drive places. And I mean by drive places, I mean like around the block. Uh, he's touching me and, and, and all the, like we were all teenagers and we were still trying to figure that stuff out. Uh, family is tough. We, we know how to push each other's buttons. But what the word here says is that your faith has to move into that part of life as well. And here's what it says, and we'll record this for the kids in children's church later. But, but what it says is, children, obey your parents. And you know, it says, why should parents, so children should obey their parents? Because it's right. <laughs> it's not even complicated. There's no long explanation. It's children, obey your parents because... It's right. In fact, it says this is one of the first commandments because it's in the Ten Commandments. It says it comes with a promise that you may live long and stay and live long in the land. In other words, so that you will be blessed and you will not lose the privileges that God gives you. Man, there's tension here because as parents, what we want to do is we want to help our children grow and be independent. And our children, they want to be independent. They want to be on their own. I mean, by the time they're seven, eight years old, they have figured out all of life. They know how to drive. They know what time they should go to bed. They should know who their friends should be. They should know how much homework they have to do. By the time they are eight years old, they are ready to do it all on their own, at least, at least in the mind. But the Word of God says, parent, children, obey your parents. Let them finish teaching you in this season. They've been at this a long time. Your parents are just like you. Your parents are just like you. Hold on tight. Your parents are just like you. They're just smarter. Your parents are just like you. They're just smarter. Not because they were born smarter, but because they've been doing it for 30 extra years. I mean, just assume you're going to be smarter in 30 years. You're going to know more than what you know right now. Is it possible that your parents have figured something out in two or three decades? Yes. It is. Trust them. Allow that to happen inside your life. Because here's the word. If you are a follower of Christ, then you have to be an obedient child. Your faith has to move from your heart inside of your family. Now, parents... It says, do not exasperate your children. Do not cause them to be angry. Now, I got to tell you, before I was a dad, I never even understood them. Like, how on earth could I make my kids angry? Okay, I figured it out. Uh, I figured it out. It came pretty easily. And I, I still am practicing new ways, not on purpose, but it still happens. I still have reflexes that, that still pokes and places where it can't. But if I'm going to be a Jesus person and I'm going to say that Jesus is in my heart, then it has to change the way that I'm a parent. And I have to resist and restrain myself 
from being a person that exasperates my kids or pokes at my kids or drives them to anger. Let me challenge you moms and dads, one of the places in which we need to protect our kids is to be careful with our words. Sometimes when we express our frustrations, sometimes we're just trying to be funny. Sometimes we're, we're just trying to blend in with, with what some other parents are saying. Sometimes we're just trying to communicate, hey, it's not perfect at our house. You know, not that anybody really guessed that it was perfect at your house. Uh, but but we're, we're, we just want to do that. But, but sometimes in that process, man, we take some shots at our kids. And sometimes our kids hear that. And sometimes we say, hey, do you want some extra kids? Well, you can have some of mine or, you know, all this stuff. And we're like, ah, chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. But your kids hear that. Man, who, who, do your parent, who do your kids have other than you that's supposed to go to the grave on their side? That, that's us. The task here is so that we can raise them up to be spiritually strong. That's, that's the goal here in terms of our role as families. So be careful, parents. Don't exasperate or drive your kids crazy. Kids, buckle up, man. They, they know what they're talking about sometimes. Be obedient to them. And, and that's part of what it means to live out faith. One more place uh, that we have to live out our faith, and that is work. Anybody live or anybody work in an imperfect workplace? Staff, please, no hands. Uh, anybody work in an imperfect workplace? Listen, work is, is hard. In fact, I don't think that any of us live in a work in a place that's not imperfect. We, we struggle sometimes. We struggle sometimes because we feel like people use their authority to their good and our harm sometimes. Sometimes it seems as though people are unfair to us in that uh, workplace. One of the things that I would encourage you is that some of us have places of authority. Some of us have supervisory uh, responsibility. And, and this passage of Scripture speaks to both sides of that power equation. This passage of Scripture talks to those that are the bond servants, those that are to the servants, to the slaves, and also to the master. And what the Word of God here says is, listen, you've got to take your faith and it's got to unpack from your heart and it's got to show up at work. And it says this in, in really kind of the same way. It says, listen, if you are working and it's a hard place and you're being mistreated, keep in mind that the person that you really work for, your direct supervisor, is not your boss, but it's Jesus. And he watches and he sees. And he says, you should work in a way that you don't just work so that you get noticed when someone shows up. That's the eye pleasers that he's talking about here. He says, but what you do is that you work so that your heavenly Father who sees all things recognizes your work ethic and your effort and your ability. And he says, listen, and if you get mistreated and if you get done wrong in that place, understand that your true supervisor sees it and he's going to have your back. And to those that have authority and to those who have responsibility, he says, keep in mind that every person that you supervise is one of mine. He says, just as much as I see what you're doing, I see what they're doing. And he says, listen, don't you dare use your authority, your power, your influence to do harm. What is it that he says here in the passage? He says, um, stop your threatening. 
He says, knowing that he who is both their master is also yours in heaven. And he says, and there's no partiality. God cares as much about you as he does them, and he cares as much about them as he does you. Jesus in my heart has to get to the very edges of my life, my work, my family, and my job. Sometimes we have a tendency to say, well, this is just the way I've always done it. I, I don't, I don't know. We, we, we just kind of say, because this is the way that I've always done it and that I'm comfortable with it, it can't be wrong. I've been doing it this way for a long time. But there are huge chunks of our life that we've been doing wrong. We've been doing less than what God would have for us to do. And he calls us and says, fix that. And so just because we've had a, a habit or we've fallen into a habit or we've been doing it a particular way for a long time, if there's a call in our life to change that, then he's going to give us the power, he's going to give us the ability to move past that and to change uh, who we are in that place. And let me just look at the now what here this morning. It's really quite simple, and it's just kind of a conversation for you to have right where you are. And when we think about your faith and how it's lived out in terms of your marriage, your family, and your work, and, and kids we can call work, school, same kind of thing, when you think about marriage, family, and work, which one of those three places is the places that you think that your faith really shows up the most? Where is the place that, that no, I'm, I mean, I'm not perfect, but, I, but, but I'm kind of, this is my area of strength. Now, I wonder whether the people around you would agree with that same conclusion. Uh, you'd kind of have to think that through as well. But where's the part of my life, marriage, family, or job, that my faith shows up most effectively, okay? Now, are you ready for the flip side of that? What's the part of my life where my faith just hasn't seemed to touch that part of my life yet? My marriage, my family, or my job? Which one of those three or the place where I most need to let my faith get loose on who I am in that part of life. And what do I need to do? What shift, what change, what step, what action can I take to begin to make that change in my life? We're going to have a time of response right now. We're going to ask you to take your chair and to make it a sacred space, uh, an altar that you can respond to God. Uh, we want to just ask you to kind of process those questions. If there's anything I can help you with, I'm going to be seated over here at the end of the service. Would love to sit with you and talk with you about anything that you need to discuss. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you are good to us. Lord, you are so good to us that we don't want to limit it to just one part of life. But we want your goodness to just pour out into every inch and ounce of who we are. So, Lord, I pray that as we reflect 
on these three public parts of life and just kind of wonder where is it that you're showing up and where is it that you've been locked out of and what can I do about it? We pray this in your name. Amen.